Mike Lesseter here from Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer. Greetings from up in Minnesota on this brisk morning. I'm on the road again this week gathering up material for the next How We Did It podcast, which is sponsored by Osmondson Manufacturing. We've just got a few more of these to do before we wrap things up on the audio podcast series at the end of this year. For today's recording, I'm with Pat Whalen, who along with brother Bernie are the owners of Yetter Manufacturing in the western Illinois town of Colchester. Their manufacturing business, which today includes 475,000 square feet and 170 employees, was founded in 1930 by their grandparents, Harry and Etta Yetter, who had a simple scraper part to clean mud off of that newfangled tractor that was making its way out to the farms. Today, Yetter defines its business as seabed preparation and preparing the soil for optimal efficiency. We've been very fortunate to have people bring us ideas. We don't operate from the perspective if it's not invented inside, it's not worth doing. We encourage people to submit ideas to us all the time, and you know some work and some don't. Like the Devastator, which is the uh, rolling device on top, on, that goes underneath the cornet on a combine. A young kid, he was like 26 years old from Indiana, brought us that idea. And, you know, it's been a remarkable product, and it's just that's that's how you grow the business. Sometimes you bring, have people bring you those ideas. That's Pat Whalen now in his 47th year at the company talking about Yetter's approach to new product development, which includes encouraging farmers and taking their calls and meeting requests to discuss their inventions. We cover a lot of ground in our sit-down in that Yetter boardroom up in Colchester, including launches and refinements of manufacturing core competencies, to several hard chapters that led to tough decisions that were needed just to ensure survival. Pat also shares memories of the day when the manufacturing company was run by, his, by their mother, almost unheard of at the time, and how the current ag climate is being leveraged as an experience gainer for his young management team, which is now demonstrating that it understands how to scrap their way through a down market. So let's go, the How We Did It Conversations podcast with Yetter Manufacturing's Pat Whelan. Well, I'm a, a third generation of the family. My grandparents started the company. Uh, I just started my 47th year with the company and uh, basically I'm the general manager of the company. And your brother works alongside with yeah. you as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's four shareholders, my brother, my two daughters, and myself. To kind of encapsulate Yetter's place in the market. Let's say you're on an elevator and going up to the top floor and someone says, what, what does Yetter company do? How do you answer that? Well, basically our, our focus is on seedbed preparation and, and, and the other parts of farming that go with that, like fertilizer placement, uh, strip till, and, and focusing on, on preparing the soils. That's, that's our, really our focus in the business. Tell me a little bit about how it was that your grandparents got started in this whole endeavor. Well, believe it or not, they started in 1930, you know, during the Great Depression. And at the time, the, the tractors had steel wheels on them, and they were uh, prone to plug up with mud. And Harry Yetter, who was my grandfather, came up with a device that would scrape the mud off. And his neighbor saw it, and just one of those things that mushroomed from his farm to other farms, and he grew the business from that then. Tell me a little bit about what that problem was and how this solved it, what, what an impact it made at the time. Well, if, if you didn't have a scraper on the wheel, it'd just pack up with mud and pretty soon you had no traction. So what this device did, it scraped the mud off of it so you could keep going in, in the conditions like we would be this fall when it's extremely wet. Otherwise, you'd have to stop and clean them off all the time. And uh, obviously, this is a time saver and it caught on and, and he grew the business from that. And 
you know, I've always, it was remarkable that it was in 1930, during the Depression, when uh, he was able to grow the business. Yeah, yeah. He was a farmer, I take yes, it? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. And did, um, did he dream of, of getting into a manufacturing business? No, it was just a second chance. Uh, like so many people that you read about that start out farming, solve the problem, the next thing you know, there's demand for it and they're in business then. And mm -hmm. one thing leads to the other. Yeah. And, that's, and that's how he grew the business. So he was able to, to scrape some dollars together for some manufacturing equipment and... I've heard the history, of, you know, the, the finite detail about how they financed the business I'm not familiar with, but I know, uh, I believe some of his uh, siblings helped finance it and then got enough money put together to start a small shop. I mean, it would be considered at that time a blacksmith shop, basically. And then he grew from that facility to other facilities. Was that here in, in town? Well, he started basically uh, in Hancock County, which the county was to us, and, and his original farm was uh, probably about 15 miles from here. I don't know why he picked Colchester, but he did. So what, 1930, you got going with a blacksmith shop, kind of mm -hmm. specializing in this tractor scraper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What happened next from there? Uh, they developed, you know, the companies. Uh, this will be our 88th year. I mean, it's one of those things that it's a natural progression. You know, this product opened up the doors for other inventions or people brought him ideas. And I know that scrapers were a, a big part of that for a number of years. And then he expanded into like grain elevators and then the um, coulter devices. He started back in the 30s and 40s. And that's basically what, you know, our claim to fame was the Coulter business. What were Henry and Etta like if you were, you know, telling your, your girls about what your grandparents were like as businessmen, people? They were, they were very down-to-earth people. I mean, obviously, they came from humble beginnings, and they never forgot that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things. I think they lived the lifestyle that if you never get used to it, you'll never miss it. And um, that's how they lived. And very personable and, you know, um, self-taught. You know, and again, going through what they went through in the 1930s to get to where they were at. And, you know, the company fell on tough times in the 1960s, and they worked their way through that, and, you know, things started swinging back up again, and uh, they were able to make it through it. What had gone on in the, in the 60s? That... There was a product that was produced uh, that was tested one way, and it was changed, and it was put back out in the field in production before it was tested like it should have been, and it had mass failures. So they bought it all back, and of course that took their operating capital. And then uh, when you, you know, there was, at, at the time, obviously that spooks lenders. And all of a sudden their, their uh, funding started to dry up, being able to go out, outsource money or capital. And um, they were able to do it, I mean, a little bit at a time, and it was enough obviously to save the company at that time. Did you know that you were going to, was this part of your plan? For no, my desire was to be commercial aviation. Yeah. In fact, I went to school for that. And then I had set up going to school three, three days a week and working for the company for two days a week. And then after a, about a year, I decided that I really liked what I was doing because I was in sales and got to meet a lot of people. That, that was more promising for me than flying an airplane. I went ahead and got my licenses, but uh, I, I let them expire. I, don't, I still fly, but I'm not pilot command. And you said how many years total have you been here? Uh, I just started my 47th. Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was telling my daughters I was going to do this interview, and they said, well, at least you got enough time for 15 minutes, you know, <laughs> over that time spread. But it's, you know, I started out usually being the youngest person in the room, and today I'm the oldest, mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's just 
a flip-flop kind of thing. How long has your brother been working here? He probably 48 or 49 years. Okay. Yeah, he's a couple years older than I am. And how long did your grandfather serve as the owner president of the company? Until the early 70s, and then he had cancer, and then my mother took over, and then uh, she passed away in 1980, and that's when my brother and I bought out the other shareholders. Your mother ran the company? Mm -hmm. Her name was Joanne, and my uh, grandparents had two sons and a daughter. And she ran the business for uh, a number of years, and she basically was also involved in the sales side of it because she dealt with different customers around the country. They had a very limited sales staff at that time. In fact, when I started, I was one of three people in, mm. in sales. So it basically, was, she did a lot of it herself and uh, managed the business from you know the manufacturing side. Of, they had a manager of manufacturing but who reported to her, and all the aspects of the business, she looked after it. So that was probably pretty unique to, at that time for a woman to be. It was. I mean, moment. we were um, probably one of the very few people that had a mother working at that time, you know, mm -hmm. back in the 60s and 70s mm -hmm. and 80s. Okay. And that was, talk about timing, that's about the time, you know, the big 80s downturn hit. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that was quite an ugly affair, yeah. but we survived it. Don't know how, but we did. Yeah, I was going to ask you how <laughs> you got through that time, particularly as the new shareholders of, of a manufacturing company. Well, ironically, the, the lender that we'd used for years prior uh, was in financial trouble because a lot of banks were in trouble at the same time. We weren't aware of that, so they called our loan. So technically, uh, you know, when I look back on it, when I really try to block these memories because you know, it was just one of those times you don't want to think about, but uh, we were technically broke. We were just young and naive and didn't know it. I mean, we were, we were going payroll to payroll to payroll. And then along come a company called ITT Financial, which I don't even know if they're still in business today. But when every other bank was exiting ag, they decided to jump in with both feet. Talk about bad timing. Mm -hmm. Well, for us, it was our salvation. But uh, many other companies failed. Without ITT, I don't know that we would be here today. That's how dire it was. And it's, I'm not just here, but a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just kind of kept going small bites to yeah, I mean, we, we, we did what we had to do. I mean, it's, um, you know, we were paying 25% operating loans. Just to be able to get a loan was an accomplishment itself. And um, we were doing business with M&W Gear Company, which is now part of Alamo. And they sent in a consultant that they were familiar with that the uh, president of M&W at that time knew quite well. And he gave us some tips on how to run a business, basically. And um, you may want to cut this out when I get done saying it, but. He said there's two kinds of SOBs in this world, but he didn't say SOB. He goes, there's a smart one who does all the right decisions, makes the tough decisions, stays in business, but in the community, you're an SOB, but you're a smart one. Then there's the other kind that's called a dumb one. It doesn't make the tough decisions, lets the business fail, but in the community, you're still a dumb SOB. Which one do you want to be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, we're sitting there going like, well, you're supposed to come here and help us, not put us down. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, we did. We made the tough decisions, and we had to do things that we didn't want to do, and it was very unpleasant. And, I, and to this day, I mean, it helped save the business. I mean, we, we were able to still employ some people, not as many as we had employed, but uh, we didn't fail. Mm -hmm. and that, that, I think, for a small community, meant a lot. Right. It still does for yeah. a small community. Yeah. I mean, having 
don't make it through the 80s, you don't have what you have here today. Right? Yeah. So you, the two of you were, were young businessmen and 1980 just bought out the business and yeah. had the market literally fall apart. Yeah, all just, it you. just, it, like somebody flipped the switch. I mean, it wasn't, whether you agreed with the guy or not, you know, Reagan was elected in 1980 and, and, and took office in 81 and him and Paul Volcker, who was the uh, chairman of the um, Federal Reserve under Carter, stayed on with, with Reagan and they did things to stop this rampant inflation that we had, you know, and, and it was just total chaos. And the thing that they used was interest rates. Many, many families were affected by it. I know farm families in this area that were very affluent and very successful that lost everything because they, you know, they were over leveraged. During the heydays of the 70s when it was plant fence row to fence row, people went out and borrowed money and bought land that they couldn't really afford or shouldn't have bought at high prices and it came back to haunt them because when they went to sell it, uh, if you could get anybody to buy it, it was worth a fraction of what you paid for it. So it just cleaned their clocks. Yeah. It's very unfortunate. And it did the same thing to manufacturers. It did the same thing to implement dealers. It was a bleak time. We've not experienced anything like that since then. You know, survived all the other downturns in the markets over the years, but it's nothing's been like the 80s. Like what we're going through right now, wouldn't even hold a light to it. Was there additional pressure on you and your brother in the 80s knowing that you were stewards of your grandparents' company? I'd have to say at that time we, did, we didn't look at it like we do today because again we were we were new uh, technically newbies at it and we had to cut our teeth and we were involved in so many other things that we just probably didn't have the time to, to the perspective but as you age and you mature then you start looking at things totally different. You had enough pressure in, in 1980 probably without yeah. having to think about that. Right? Um, many 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 sleepless nights. We'll get back to the Pat Whelan and Yetter story in just a second, but first a word about Osmondson Manufacturing, which continues to support us in these chronicles of family-run equipment manufacturers. Osmondson has a storied family history of its own, dating back to 1903. Visit them at www.osmondson.com. Before we get back to Pat in a moment, I'd also like to share that we're proud to say that Yetter is a longtime sponsor of our own events in helping bringing knowledge, best practices, and tech transfer out to our subscribers. And have a personal observation about the team that Pat has assembled there. Many of you will know Derek, Andy, and Jeff from the conferences and summits that uh, Yetter participates in each year with four events, now total 18 title sponsorships and counting. The Yetter crew doesn't merely show up at the cocktail receptions. They are actually adding value to our attendees' experience because they bring the right staff that can handle the hard questions, they go to all the sessions, and even help facilitate roundtables among farmers and dealers. And then they foul up with those farmers and dealers afterwards at their own sites. So it's a crew that clearly enjoys their work in helping farmers and dealers succeed, and it's appreciated by us and our customers who come. So well done. Now, back to part two of the recording with Pat Whalen at Yetter. I know you, we've talked about the 80s quite a bit. What are some of the, the hardest times? Whenever you lay off staff, that's a hard time, especially in a small community, uh, because it impacts a lot of people, you know, families, and that is, it's, that's a very tough thing to do, and we, take, we don't take it lightly. But our philosophy is that you gotta look at it from the perspective, while you've laid other people off, have other people still in their jobs and you got to look at that's how we that's we're at least helping some and unfortunately the layoff is uh, 
it's part of the business. You know, we that not have to done it very much, but we did do it in the past few years. Now we're you know trying to hire again, mm-hmm. and we're on the opposite side. We're uh, we're fighting with everybody else for what few people there are to hire. So you you and Bernie were young men. If you had been, let's say, taking that role on five or ten years earlier, or five or ten years later as as older executives, would you have had a different outlook on? Absolutely. We would have done things a lot quicker. I mean, obviously, we'd have more time under our belts from a management standpoint, and and probably would have, I wouldn't say that we predicted it was coming. Usually, there's tall tale signs something's about to happen. And I, you know, we just didn't read the tea leaves right. And, and I, not just us, but a lot of people did. Right. You know, there's, that's what I say in the rooms when I'm sitting in meetings. You know, it's not, I'm certainly not the smartest person in the room because I get some sharp people working here. Um, all I do is bring a historical look point of view to it. And that, that's really all I offer. Perspective on yeah. it. Mm-hmm. There's good lessons to share about those times, even, even today, to, to remind people of things, right? Well, I, I, I reframe from that because they mean something to me. But as an example, this I'm glad you brought that up. This happened yesterday. Uh, we have a uh, young guy that's 26. But anyway, I met with him. And I brought out an advertising campaign that an ad agency had presented to us in uh, October of 1991. He goes, that was two months before I was born. So we were just going back and looking at some historical stuff that I always thought they did some neat ideas. How did we put another twist on it to use it in social media? And uh, I mean, that puts it in perspective, you know. Yeah. Right. He wasn't even <laughs> born yet. I bought a house for an expanding family in 1982 or three, and I got a 13% fixed rate mortgage. And I thought I got a hell of a deal. And the only reason I got that deal, it was a repo. And the bank was wanting to get it off the paper, so I've, I qualified for that. But interest rates on home loans, you were 16, 17, 18% was not unheard of. So it, it's. People complain about right now the interest rates are going back up to what four or five percent on homes. I was going to ask who your mentors were. Well, we had a uh, board of directors that were made up of outside people that I think gave us a lot of insight. They were from a very, very uh, diverse background in their careers, from an insurance agent, an attorney, manufacturing, financial. So they brought in a, a wealth of information for us, and I think that's probably. From a mentoring standpoint, that's where we got it. That itself was probably pretty progressive thinking to bring outside directors into the... Right. That was uh, brought about by the lender. That's, they insisted on that they get outside help. Basically, I wouldn't say these people volunteered for it. They were asked to serve on it, but it was basically volunteering their time. For our listeners, I'd like you to kind of describe what the manufacturing is that they would see if, if you were walking them through, you know, the type and size and scope and all those things. Well, to set the stage for that, one of the OEMs that we supply has, has a supplier development team. Over the years, we've used that team extensively. And one of the things that they insist on, if you're good at it, invest in it. If you're not good at it, outsource it. So in some manufacturing plants you'd go through, uh, you'd see everything being done internally. And, and we don't do that. We decided that we're good at punching or like press work, uh, high-speed machining, uh, welding, assembly, painting, and then distribution. And a lot of items that fall in, in between that, like uh, we used to have three lasers going around the clock. We, we don't even own a laser today. I mean, there's no need for us to own it because we can outsource it more economically than we can do it internally. One thing that we've got going for us, you know, we're located in, in the center of manufacturing. You know, you've got uh, CAT 90 miles from us. 
you got deer 90 miles from us, you got the car factories in St. Louis. So we're, you know, we're just surrounded by all kinds of manufacturing that outsource the suppliers, the kind of things that we outsource, like, like laser work. So if you walk through our factories, you'd see those things that I laid out. You'd see the robots that wouldn't weld in. You'd see high-speed machining centers, presses, and obviously we, we do uh, powder coat paint, we do wet paint, and then dip, and then we do spray paint. And then we've got you know, the distribution centers. That outsourcing or <clears throat> core competency mm-hmm. discussion, was that something that came a long time ago in time or more, more recently? Or? It's probably been... Um, in the last 10 years, it's been been a focal point for us with the supplier development. At the same token, I mean, they, they basically that OEM, they're very on the ball. I mean, they know exactly what our costs are because, I mean, they, they're so diverse in what they do. And they basically compare our cost to what they would get it for. And if we're obviously, if we're competitive, then we continue on. If we're not, then we got to figure out what we're doing. And that's, that's one of the things that I think over the time that we um, went through um, from a... Um, competitive standpoint, they just keep you on your toes. I mean, it's been a good relationship. We've been doing business with them for decades. But, uh, I mean, they they've, they've have a responsibility to their shareholders, as we do. And if it's good for both parties, we go on. If it's not, then they go their way, we go our way on certain products. But it's been a good good for us because we learn from it. There's two decisions that they, they say in business. One you earn from and one you learn from. You know, so we've, we've done a lot of learning over the years. <laughs> When uh, the OEM work, was that something that came in during the 1980s, did I see? Yeah, 19, well, we did a joint marketing back in the 80s, and then it, it developed into manufacturing. We do for Agco, Case, and Deer. And it, I mean, it just, it's one of those things that just, it's, it's a, it grew over the years. You, you, know, you build a relationship with people. And I, I will have to say that was back in the day before you did build a relationship with engineering, you built a relationship with supply management. Today, all that's all mechanical. It's done electronically in a lot of cases. You don't get the, the interactions with the people. And I think that sometimes that's by design so that everything's done the right way versus sometimes bringing personalities into it. But it also impacts on the other end as well. What are the, some of those things that, uh, because of the, the, the big OEM work and the disciplines that are, are that have to accompany that, that has made the company better as a whole? They, they, they make us open our eyes to look at things doing different things, different ways. And an example that really, I, to this day, I, you know, it was an eye-opener. They brought in some weldments and some parts and set them in a conference room and brought some of the players and people off the floor the management team and every and, and I sat in on it because I really couldn't give it any input. And they held up a, a, a small weldment and said, how many times is this touched from the time it comes in the back of the, where it's receiving as a raw material to it goes out the other doors as a finished goods. And they wrote down all the numbers everybody gave them around the, on the wall. They had this great big post-it notes up on the walls. We didn't even come close. I mean, it was, it was an eye-opener that, you know, their attitude is if you don't add value to it, why are you touching it? Why can you do multiple stages? We're sitting there like, wait, wait, ask, we're, we're perfect at this right now. That was a real eye-opener. And it was a real training. I think people walked out of there with a totally different perspective on how we need to look at things. Yeah. Because we were terrible at it. And some some, some we, we did okay, but some of them we were terrible at it. So that, that's one of those exercises where they say every time you touch it, you're putting 20 bucks onto this piece? Or yeah, I mean, this, well, this one person that was on the team and, and uh, 
came in and, and basically made people go through steps. Every time he, he took a step, and he goes, if you're not adding, adding value, and, and the person, at the, like at the machining centers or whatever, he'd go, wasted step, wasted step, wasted step. And you're thinking like, well, we're not juvenile. But he got his point across. You know, that's how he had to do it, that everybody understood that uh, we thought we were doing all the right things, but you, we had to cut steps out of it. And when we did, it's like um, a lot of manufacturers think, and not just manufacturers, a lot of people even in retail businesses think that you have to have this comfort inventory levels so that you're not operating just in time. You may, you may use a, a month's worth of inventory, but you're carrying two months worth of inventory. And we were guilty of that to some extent. And this uh, one supply management developer asked me one day, we were walking through the factory and he saw this inventory and he goes, don't you trust the bank? I said, well, what do you mean why do I don't trust the bank? He goes, you'd rather be able to see your money sitting on the floor versus seeing it in your bank account. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, you know, it, it, just, it stops you in your traction. You're going like, well, that's a good point. <laughs> you, know, I, we, you just get accustomed to you know, how people do that things. And, you're thinking you're doing the right things, but sometimes it just takes somebody to come in and wake you up. And that's probably, not only are we able to use that on the OEM side of it, but we're able to use that on the other side of it. So there's, a, you know, for us, there's a real benefit for it. So in that example with the weld mints, did you move to a, a cellular arrangement or yeah. by castings or what, how did you? We did, we did numerous steps. Uh, obviously, have you been in the comb factory? Mm -hmm. Yeah. On, on the west end of that, where they do a lot of the assembly work, all those are cells now where we leave them up all the time, where we used to tear them down, set them up, tear them down. So we put in permanent cells. That made us much more efficient. And then when we look at how where the machines were stationed relative to you know, different kind of jobs, and we tried to sequence things so that somebody didn't have to walk five foot away, they turn it right to it. It's, it's just, it was a lot of things like that and investment in machines. That, that helped us. Excellent, that's a good story. What are you, um, your, your proudest product innovations if you went back and pulled out a handful that really made a mark in this industry? I'd, I'd have to say in recent years, the one that probably uh, put us on the map was what we call the residue manager, which is commonly referred to in the industry as a row cleaner. And, and that, that was back in the early 90s. And, we had a local, at that time, it would be called a big-time operator in this area, and today they're super big-time operators. But anyway, we were licensed to build the product, and we took a couple of our uh, samples out that we're prototyping to this farmer in the spring. He goes, I'm really busy right now. I'll let you put two rows on. If it works, then we'll talk about it. The guy made, we put the two rows on, he made one round. He goes, it was a 12-row planter. He goes, how soon can I get the other 10 rows? Well, luckily we had him with us, anticipating <laughs> But he, I mean, he was a type of farmer that farmed on a grand scale at that time. And like I said, they farm much bigger today. Once we knew that he approved of it, that he wasn't going to be the only person that would approve of it. So we expanded it and went, took it out to other test sites. And you know, the rest of his history just exploded overnight. Do you have the biggest uh, share of the market in that, in that product that I see? I would think that we do, yes. You know, I mean, there's, there, no one reports it, but assuming the people that we supply in the, in the market share that we have in, in, on the other side, I would, I would have to think that we do. We never let our guard down thinking that, you know, we're always trying to push harder to get more market share and do new, new innovations and that to, to grow the market. So that's one, are there, are there a couple others that? Well, we, we still make a rotary hoe and that was patented in 1978. And of course it's expired now. 
But at that time, there were numerous companies. You know, all the majors were making a rotary hoe. A lot of short lines were making a rotary hoe. And, and today in the United States, we're the only one left doing it. That was one of the real early products that your grandparents were making, correct? Yeah, that goes back, uh, I'd have to say back into the 40s when they were started out making that kind of product and you know, evolved over the time. And then in the early 70s, John Deere revolutionized the rotary hoe business with the toolbar model they had. I think that was introduced like 73, 74, and then we introduced one similar in 1977 and patented it in that time frame. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, decades later, we're still making the thing. It's, it's usually unheard of. I'm Frank Lesseter, and I've been editor of No-Till Farmer since we started it in 1972. Since I've been involved with No-Till practically from the start, I've put together a book with over 400 pages called From Maverick to Mainstream, A History of No-Till Farming. It's the personal stories of the people, the innovations, and the influence that have saved the soil and, quite honestly, have saved the family farm. The book's got 416 pages, 650 photographs, 125 charts, figures, and tables, and we have a foreword in the book. It was written by John Young, who's the son of the late Harry Young, the first American farmer to try no-till way back in 1962. I plan to autograph copies of the book for those who request it. So make sure to order your copy at www.notillfarmer.com slash history or order by phone by calling 800-277-1570. If you're in the no-till at all, this is a great opportunity to take a look at what's happened in the past. There's been a lot of, well it seems from my perspective, there's an awful lot of patents out there with, with your name on it and your, your team. A lot of them have been recent, correct? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that, that from a manufacturing standpoint, the product development, we've been very fortunate to have people bring us ideas. We don't operate from the perspective if it's not invented inside, it's not worth doing. We encourage people to submit ideas to us all the time. And you know, some work and some don't work. But like the uh, Devastator, which is the uh, rolling device on top, on, that goes underneath the corn head on a combine. A young kid, he was like 26 years old from Indiana, brought us that idea. It's, you know, it's been a remarkable product and it's just, that's, that's how you grow the business sometimes. You bring, have people bring you those ideas. How did you foster that where you made it known that farm, farmers, farm kids could knock on your door and present it to you? I, I think it's just, it's one of those things, it's word of mouth that, you know, when people say, well, where do I take this to? Uh, that we've developed that reputation over the years that people bring us those ideas. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that we can take a look at something pretty quickly and say that this is something that we're interested in or something we're not interested in. And, and, and I would say 99.9% of the time when somebody brings you an idea, it's just basically the idea. It's not ready to be put in production because what a farmer can build in a shop and do get away with from a warranty standpoint, we can't do that. We have to be more uh, critical about the life cycle of the product and all the other things that go into that. And then sometimes they build it to fit a specific machine. Well, if you want to expand that market, then you got to go out and find the other brands and fit them. And that's, that's probably the toughest part about it. But that's the, I mean, it's either you run with the idea or you don't run with the idea. And then the price of admission is doing all that uh, legwork behind it. Mm -hmm. You're third generation, mm -hmm. right? And you have, you have two daughters mm -hmm. who are shareholders in the mm -hmm. business. What's the future look like for Yetter? 
Well, my daughters are, are pursuing their own careers, not in the company. That was by their own choice, and I, and I encourage that. They want to see it uh, perpetuate, and we have a uh, what I consider to be young uh, management team, and they're uh, coming up through the company, and I, I wouldn't hesitate with, with, with them running the company today, the, the management team, you know, because uh, the one thing that they hadn't gone through yet was a downturn, and now they've been through that, and they know what they have to do. So I feel very comfortable that, that they could, in a heartbeat, take over. Yeah, that, that's interesting, isn't it? That uh, need to go through that to really Absolutely. cut your teeth. Right? right, I mean, when things are blowing and going, anybody can make it. When things are not going like that, that's when talent comes into play. And you were asking me about experience. I think that it was probably one of the very few times that I ever used experience to the extent I did when we could tell that the market was, you know, like a few years ago, like this recent downturn was really gonna be a lot more dire than what we thought it was gonna be when it first started. So it was in this very room, I brought all the managers in and we had a heart to heart. And I said, you know, this is what we had to do back in the 80s. Hopefully this one would never get that bad, but you, you need to be prepared to do it if we have to do it. And everybody understood, you know. And uh, luckily, uh, we probably should have throttled back six months before we did. And can't do anything about that now, but you know, going forward, we could do something about it. And that's, that's when we made the decision that we were gonna have to cut back dramatically. At times, I, I tease my management staff that there's overhead and then there's people like me, unnecessary overhead. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they get a kick out of it. You can't take it really seriously or it'll drive you crazy about you know, business. And, and, and I've always said the business side of it's the easy part. It's when you factor the people into it, is when you bring in all the uh, other aspects of the business that cause you heartburn. What would be your, your, you look back on the, on the last 47 years, what brings you the most pride? Not going broke. <laughs> <laughs> I look at this business, you know, I have a lot of friends that are farmers in my age group. You know, I'm, I'm 65 and um, I, th I think they were challenged to farm the farm and hand it to, off to the next generation. And I look at my job as doing the same thing in this family-owned business, that don't screw it up, let the fourth generation have it, and let them run with it. And that's, then that's probably the best joy I have out of it. There's been a lot of happy times, and there's been a lot of sad times. That's just part of it. You know? but, but looking back, would I do things differently? Absolutely. But what we did got us to where we're at, so I can't complain. You know? yeah. it's, just, it's like the management team I was talking about. I, I firmly believe when you delegate authority to someone, you delegate them authority. And both Derricks in the company have heard this a million times, they're probably sick and tired of hearing about it. I don't always agree with their methodology, but I certainly agree with their results, so I shut up and walk away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if they want my advice, they'll ask me. And if they don't ask me, it's not time for me to interject because it's, uh, it's their idea and they need to run with it, not my idea. What would be something that's really unique about your philosophy here or your approach that might be different than some of the competitors out there? What would be unique about Yetter? Well, the impact that the 80s made on us was the fact of the, the financial nightmare that we went through. And to this day, we run our business the same way as we're self-financed and we want to keep it that way, but we, we operate the business as though we're up to our eyeballs in debt with the bank. So we make the right decision on, on do we really need this or can we live without it? Mm -hmm. And versus, well, we got the luxury of having the cash, we're just gonna buy it. 
What would be something that uh, the industry doesn't know about Yetter that we might shine some light on? You mentioned the dealer. We, we owned the John Deere dealership for 10 years in Macomb, seven miles from this factory. Yeah. I was a general manager of it as well. We sold it three years ago, four years ago. That was the best short-term business we were ever in. Yeah. We were in it for 10 years. It was a fantastic business. Martin and Sullivan bought the store. We, yeah. we were trying to expand by other locations and turns out everybody wanted to buy us because we were a single store and then we just decided at one time that we can't grow it and some of the requirements from a customer service standpoint were, were going to be difficult for a single location to afford. Uh, we had tremendous market share. I mean this area is it's all green basically just about you know and, and actually at, at some points we had too much market share because getting rid of the used was just as difficult you know. That's interesting because you know how dealers operate. Mm -hmm. You have a, that's a unique perspective. What, mm -hmm. what did that experience teach you that helped you deal better with your, your dealers out there as a result of having been in that chair? One of the things that, that as a dealer of tomorrow location, we were invited to a lot of seminars on how to manage businesses and the various aspects of running a John Deere dealership. And I personally tried to attend as many of those as I could because again, it gave me an insight of what the dealer thought about. Plus, usually you walk out of there with some very good ideas. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, there, I would say that I, some of the business management parts that I, that I use today, I learned in some of those seminars. One I think that really stuck with me was if, if you can't do anything about it, why are you talking about it? Do, do something that you can control. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time. It really drove home a point to me, and I, and I think that that's true in business. As a manufacturer, and that experience of having been on the retail side, did it change your thinking about what you needed to do as a manufacturer? Absolutely. All? Yeah. You know, it gave us insight. I think that very few other of our competitors had, and how how a dealer really needs to look at things. And the dealership, even though I was a general manager, had its own autonomy. If it wanted to sell you other products, sell you other products. If they didn't want to sell you other products, I'm not going to force you to do something you don't want to do. And Frankly, we were our focus was on combines and tractors because that's that's what you you know that's what you get rated on market share. You know they talk about planters and they talk about this, but if you don't do the combines and tractors, that's when there's a serious discussion. It gives you that insight on how a dealer thinks and and what you have to do. And I and I think that we uh, did some programs that followed that line of thought. What had caused you to get into the dealer business for that 10 years? What, what was the opportunity for you? Uh, a call from Deere, because we had, were a supplier and we'd had a long-term relationship with them, of, you know, one of the OEMs that we were doing business with, and we got a call out of the clear blue sky one day from the dealer side and wanted to know if we'd entertain investing in the dealership. And like, we've, we'd had such a great relationship with John Deere over the years, we thought, well, if they're coming to us with an idea, they're not gonna, they don't come to us because they want us to see us go broke, there's an opportunity there. And um, one thing led to the next thing, you know, we owned a John Deere dealership. Yeah. It, with our intent from day one was to expand it, not just to be a single location, but, you know, they're kind of hard to get if people don't want to sell them. And that was a, a time there was a lot of change coming into mm -hmm. Deere's own expectations of their dealers. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you read a lot of stuff like on Ag Talk and all these other things about dealers being forced out of business. We never felt one time that the writing was on the wall. We did it on, on our own because we looked at the investment we're going to have to make. And most importantly, our customers expected that of us, that it wasn't going to be feasible for a single store to do it the way it needed to be done.
What um, would our business be like without the short-line, independent, family-type enterprises? I think, in a nutshell, we drive innovation because we're able to do it. I've heard it summed up before, a short line, if you take a major manufacturer, like an Agco, Case, or Deer, they're like a battleship. We're PT boats. And, you know, we can spin on a dime if we have to and, and do things differently. Where they're that ba- big battleship, it takes them a long time to stop it, it takes them a long time to turn it, and the different things that, I mean, we can make circles around it the time they get turned around. And I think that that's what we bring, that we're able to see something, innovate it, per, uh, introduce it to the market, and then drive new innovations through that. You usually have about four to five years you know, with a new, new product, and then all of a sudden it's one of those things that there's a lot of people, they, they figure out how to get around patents or they figure out how to do this. That's just, that's just the nature of the beast. You know? Tell me about that acquisition. You had bought the Yazoo City, why that made sense for you and what, what uh, does today for you to have that facility down there? Well, again, it was, timing's everything. We bought it when the market was still booming, and obviously they've uh, went through the same thing that we went through of, of a softening of the business. So it's still profitable. Uh, we had to do the same thing in Yazoo City as we did here. We had layoffs, and we had to cut back on our production schedules and various things of that nature. Uh, but our, our intent was to get a footprint in a non-common market that we're not into at this point. The Delta and, the, you know, we're... We're focused in a lot of our products on reduced till or no till. They're full tillage, in which is still a, like a, that's done most of the southern states, and water management. And, and it just made sense to us that we weren't going to cannibalize a market that we were already in by buying a competitor, that it made more sense to buy something like that to expand. But like I said, timing was everything. And our plan didn't go quite as it would planned, but I mean, it's one of those things that it will someday. Mm-hmm. It's just, when's that day? Have there been many acquisitions over the years? No, uh, we, we've bought some product lines, uh, but we, we used to have a company within us that sold uh, like lawn and turf pro- kind of products. We had, talk about, you know, the Chinese decimating a market. You've seen the, the fire pits, like mm-hmm. the Weber grill with the screen in it. That was one of our inventions. Made thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them. I mean, that, thing, that market was going and we had another division set up within the company to sell that. Then along come the Chinese, and they were selling in the United States wholesale cheaper than we could buy the steel. Now we're on some major OEMs of steel buys. How can that be? Yep. And like within two years time, it was dead, totally dead. So we, we folded that business back down. Yeah. I mean, they made other products besides the fire pit, but uh, every product we made was, was attacked by the Chinese. Got out of that business as... Well, you can't, we can't compete with the Chinese government, and that's what was going on at that time. Actually, one of our biggest customers in that, when we were doing that, was SkyMall, the little catalogs in the airplanes. That was, that's, we sold the most of them through that. Okay. When your time is up and you're looking back at your career here, what do you hope the mark is that you've left here? My daughter's asking me constantly when I'm going to hang it up, and I just tell her, you know, because, well, you can draw Social Security, Dad. I'm like, so what? You know, it, it doesn't interest me whatsoever. I mean, it's not, and hopefully I don't need that to live off of it, but... As long as I feel like I'm, I'm producing and in good health and, and enjoying what I'm doing, I want to work. Because I, I, I tried going to Florida for a couple winters and sit back for a month and I went crazy. It doesn't interest me just to sit around and not do anything. I mean, you can get hobbies and other kind of things and be mentors if you want to, but I think you, you're, you do best at what you know best. And to answer your question of what, what, what I hope to, to accomplish, I would hope that we could look back 
and say that we uh, help push the, the, the no-till or reduce farming, help people cut costs when they really needed it. And we did too in business, you know, mm -hmm. those kind of things. And I think it opened up the door to a broad spectrum of customers and you know, the uh, products that we've developed since then have, have helped add to that. And that's the kind of a sense of the direction the company's going from a product development standpoint. Mm -hmm. That's got to be satisfying. It is. You know, it's like I said, I, I just got to hand her off to the next generation and my, my job's done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did your daughters tell you you should talk about today? You said you had told them that you were doing it. I, to paraphrase is, don't make a fool out of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's but they didn't put it yeah. that lightly. Yeah. Lightly. Yeah, I think I think this is great. Perfect. It's a real pleasure to sit down and do this with you. Well, thank you thank for the you opportunity. For it means a lot. I mean, yeah. it's I'm I'm a behind the scenes person, you know, mm -hmm. and and I do other things for the company. Yeah. And uh, I did I did the farms show circuit long enough. Yeah, you you guys do a good job out there. We, well, thank we you. Visit thank them you. Every time we're out there. And, and I, I I'm truly serious about uh, the Derricks. If something happened, you know, it's one of the things that Dear always asks uh, from a management standpoint. On your way home. You pull out in front of a train. Are you a brick wall or just a speed bump? And that's one thing that, that I take pride in is making sure that I'm just a speed bump. Would things change a little bit? Absolutely. Whenever there's a change in management, things are going to change. But I'm not, I'm not going to be a showstopper. It's an interesting way to put that. You owe it to the people that look to the company for a living. And we've seen it where generations were never trained properly and all of a sudden they get handed off a business you know four or five years later it fails and that's the last thing i want to see happen here and, and you're preparing for it yeah, absolutely you know yeah. we bought farm equipment in 2004 and it seems like that's been the the path mm -hmm. that whole time so they can't mm -hmm. get experience if you don't let them and that's and that's like i said i, I don't always agree with the methodology but i agree with the results so mm -hmm. what, what more can i ask for Thanks to Pat for carving out the time for us at his place and on a day that we could see was clearly a busy one for the entire Yetter crew. And again, thanks to Osmondson Manufacturing for supporting our time, travel, and production for these recordings. Check them out at www.osmondson.com. And a special thanks, of course, to Joe Kinsley at Lesseter Media for his stellar editing work once again. So till next time, I'm Mike Lesser of Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. <laughs>